This message is a ministry of Plainville Baptist Church. www.plainvillebaptistchurch.org Let's pray together. Dear Father, we come to you, Lord, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Lord, we come with great expectation to hear from you, to learn from you this morning, Lord. Uh, we pre presented our songs, our voices to you, Lord, so that hoping that uh, we'll be listening to you, Lord, and you, you would um, hear us, Lord, and um, give us the opportunity to hear from you as well, Lord. Please open our, open our ears, open our minds, tune our ears to your voice, Lord. And let our hearts receive your word this morning. Um, Lord, we ask you all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis 15. Genesis chapter 15. And as we're working through Genesis in the weekly word, um, you know, there are some chapters we've skipped over, but Genesis is such an important foundation, and that's why I've included a large uh, set of that material in our uh, weekly word. And so, um, consider what God has laid down as our foundation for our relationship with Him in the book of Genesis. There's a, there's a lot of material that is... Um, germane to our walk with God. Genesis chapter 15, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Since you have given me no offspring, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. So as we consider here this morning the, the impossible promises of God... We have to recognize what's going on in Abraham's life here in this passage and in all the chapters that we've been reading about in the last week. In this chapter, previously, Abraham had just returned from the defeat of the kings. 
these four kings come and attack these five nation states uh, near where Abram's living. And the importance to Abram was that his nephew Lot was living in Sodom, which was one of the cities that was captured. And Lot and all his family and all his possessions were taken uh, by these other four city-states. And uh, Abram heard about it by one of the survivors. And, and so he tries to rescue his nephew. He takes his, the, the trained servants in his house, 318 men, which gives you the, the scope of um, his possessions, the scope of his uh, household. And, uh, and then the alliances that he had made with these other princes in the area, um, they were required to come and help him because of their, because of their um, uh, alliance with Abram. And so he returns from that and... As he does, he meets two individuals, and the way he responds to these individuals determines the path of his life. It directs the path of his life. The first one he met was Melchizedek, who happened to be a priest of God as he returned from this. And it says that Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all that he had. He gave him a tithe of all that he had, and Melchizedek blesses God on his behalf, and he blesses Abram. The second man that he meets is the king of Sodom, uh, that wicked city that was taken captive as well, and Abram liberated him and all the people there and everything. It says he, he returned all the spoils. He had all the spoils with him. He was taking them back. He gave out of those spoils a tenth of it to, um, to Melchizedek, but the king of Sodom comes up to him and says, Abraham, listen, you take all the treasure and just give me all the people. As if the king of Sodom was in a place to be calling the shots here after he was just rescued by Abram. Uh, but what he does is he gives everything back to the king of Sodom except the share of the people that went with him, his alliances. He goes, I'm not going to take a single thing from you. I'm not going to take a thread. I'm not going to take a, a sandal thong lest anyone should say that you made me rich, that my riches are because of you. And so he, he separates himself from that wicked king. He says, I'm not going to have anything to do with you. You take everything that you think was yours so that you have no way of coming back later and say, yeah, I'm the one who made Abram rich. And so now in chapter 15, Abraham is downcast. Perhaps because of that decision, what did I do? I gave up all that stuff. But more likely, here it is, he's 83 now. When God first came to him, he was 75. He, God promised him when he was 75 that he would have uh, these descendants now, eight years later, he still has no children. The only posterity that he has is his chief servant, Eliezer of Damascus. He's going to inherit all of that. And so he's despondent. He's talking to the Lord. The Lord comes to him. And he's thinking, you know, I'm going to pass from the scene. I'm going to be forgotten. But God tells him right there, no, no, no. One who is going to come from your own body will be your heir. It's not too late. You're not too old. Because I'm involved. Abraham, listen to this. You see, God makes three impossible promises to Abraham. 
He comes to him. He makes these three promises. He comes to him seven different times throughout the Scripture. The last time comes in the chapter that you're going to start reading uh, this week in chapter 22. He comes to him and promises him these incredible things, three promises, seven different times, and each time they become more impossible, if that's really possible. Um, If something's impossible, can it be more impossible? But he comes to him, and, and why is God doing this? And this is what's instructive for you and me. Why is God calling Abraham to believe the impossible so that Abraham will trust in what God says? He is to bring Abraham to a place of resting in what only God can do so that God becomes Abraham's authority for truth. That's so very important. Truth. Biblical faith, however, is this. Biblical faith is not believing the difficult, but the impossible. It's not believing the uh, difficult but the impossible. So it, it's not that you're thinking, well, I can do some great things with God that are really hard. It's not at all. With, if God is going to help me, I'm going to do these really great things. Mm. It, and it's so that when these things take place that are so incredible, by believing God and what only He could do, He gets the credit for it. And, it, and, and it's not this. It's not you believing, well, God's on my side and He's going to back up whatever I do. It's not that at all. It's that you're on His side and you're submitting to what He says. Not, God, I've got this great plan. I've got these things I want to accomplish and you're going to be with me. No, it's God says, I'm going to accomplish these things. Are you with me? That's the difference. And I hope you see that. I hope you realize faith is not believing what I can conceive and going ahead with it. That's paganism. Making myself the God who comes up with what I want to do and makes it happen. Oh, with God's help, maybe. But that's not what God is calling Abram to do. And so there are three impossible promises that God makes to Abraham that he's going to carry out. Land, I'm going to give you this land. Descendants, I'm going to give you descendants. And not just a couple. I'm going to give you descendants like the sand on the seashore for descendants. Anybody ever here try to go to a beach and count all the sand there? That's what he's promising Abram. And thirdly, he's promising him Messiah. And so these seven times that he comes to him, he promises him all these things. The first one is this promise of the land. In chapter 13, in 14 through 17, he promises him this. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes, Look from the place where you are. Look northward, look southward, look eastward, look westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. Think about this. Here's an impossible promise that God is giving to Abram. 
So what's impossible about this land? I mean, people inherit portions of ground all the time. What's different here? What's distinct about this? Think about it for a second. There's two areas that make this impossible. Number one, the nations that are already in the land. When Abraham arrived in Canaan, there were already nations that were there. Listen, if someone is going to overrun another nation, they have to be greater militarily and greater numerically. I mean, you see that with Russia and Ukraine, right? Russia is greater numerically. It doesn't appear that they may be greater militarily. But you have this, and it comes in as one man, one household. And, and in chapter 12, when God called, says the Canaanite was already in the land. The Canaanite was already in the land. He's not going to be a threat to these people. By the time we get to chapter 13 and this division taking place with Lot, this problem where their flocks were so big that they couldn't graze together anymore, it says, and I think this is for the emphasis, right before God promises him, it says, now the Canaanite and the Perizzite are in the land. Now there's two nations that are in the land living there. And so we, we see this, two groups then after 10 years After this promise in chapter 15 that God comes to Abram, in the very last verses of chapter 15, God says the Kenizzite and the Kenite and all these ten nations now are in the land. And Abram, I'm going to give that to you. How are you going to do that? These people are there. They're ready. You know, what's what's Abram going to do? I'll get right on that, Lord. He had nothing with which to get on that with. And so God was making it more impossible for him to have that land so that when he had that land, it would be God who did it and God became all in all to Abraham. There's a second reason why this is impossible. It's called a land bridge. You see that little speck of of uh, property there called Canaan or the land of Israel is a land bridge between Europe and Asia and Africa. And this providentially sculptured piece of territory, you couldn't go through the desert to come down and switch. You had to go through and God providentially sculpted that. You had to come down through Israel. Who do you think was in charge of that? Who do you think knew that? Who do you think told Abram, leave the nice place you're at that's safe and good to come to this land bridge where everybody's going to be passing through to do trade and the big countries are going to want to control it so that they get the money for the trade. The king's highway went right through Israel unless God did it. They wouldn't have the land So we see this. It's like chess, right? The person controlling the center of the board has the advantage. Everybody has to come through to get in and out of that place. And so we, we see this. It's this bottleneck to control the trade of the world. If they were to stay free, if they were to stay intact as a nation, God would have to do it. God would have to do it. 
But what's the problem? Other nations are going to have a 400-year head start. They would be settled. They would be ready before Israel ever appears, before they ever come out of Egypt, out of slavery, and come into Canaan. There's this 400-year-plus history that they are there. Israel came. There were walled cities. There were iron weapons. There were iron chariots. And what did Israel have? Not much in regard to military strength and power. God would have to do it. That Israel has, had even obtained the land. The fact that they retained a coherent identification as a nation. And even been reconstituted today as a nation. They've survived numerous attacks against them as people and nations all around them have sought to destroy them. The Assyrian nation, people like Haman, the enemy of the Jews, all the way up until today, they've, they've tried to do this. It shows the impossible nature of the promise of God including the, the Arabs that are surrounding them. 100, what is it, 135 million surrounding that? Just a little group. They're always trying to get to destroy them or to turn public opinion against them. We see this. But what do we see? God says, I'm going to give it to you for an everlasting possession. It's an impossible promise. And yet, what does God say? What is impossible with men is possible with God. That's what we see here. And God gave to Abram this promise of the land. It's impossible. But secondly, he gave him this promise of descendants. At 75 years old, God first comes to Abram and says, listen, I know you're childless, but I'm going to give you descendants. I'm going to make you like the sand of the seashore. He promises him he would make him a great nation. Now that's tough. At 75. Right? Would you say that? That's tough. Uh, maybe not impossible. I was, several years ago, I was at Wachusett skiing one day, and I'm in the lodge wait, sitting around, and this guy comes up, he to, sits at the table and takes his lunch, and he, he's 70 years old, and he's talking to me about this kid he just had, and how proud he was that he can have a child at 70 years old. And, and I'm just thinking, well, I hope, hope you're around when he's 10. Uh, but... I should have, you know, that would have been a great opportunity. I said, I know somebody who had a child when they were 100. Um, but, you know, you always think about those great opportunities to witness after the fact, right? I, I have this spiritual gift of being able to do that. Um, so, so for the next time I see some guy who's 70 and has a child, uh, uh, but then he comes to Abram eight years later when he's 83 and he says, Abram, you're going to have children. So he made it more impossible. And guess what? Your wife is 73. I'm going to do that. Someone's going to, he says, please, Lord. You know, and, and, and think about this. By the time they're 85, by the time he's 85 and she's 75, Sarah comes up with a solution. Listen, you have a child through my servant. And I'll take the child, pass him across my hips as it was custom in that day. This will be my surrogate child, and we'll, we'll, have, we'll, we'll do it for God. We'll carry out this promise for God. It wasn't the way that God wanted. It wasn't what he had in mind. 
And so God allowed him to simmer in that problem for a little while. And he appears to Abram again when he's 99 years old. And he says, unequivocally, Sarah herself will have a child. And the impossibility of of such a promise caused Abraham to laugh. He laughed in chapter 17. He laughed and, and he offers up Ishmael as a replacement. God, let me get you out of this. Let Ishmael live before you. Let him be the promised one. God, I know you might need help in this. And God says, no, 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 no. Sarah, the child is going to come from Sarah at 90 years old. Abram, she's, she's going to have a child. So that God, you're going to name him Laughter. You're going to name him Isaac. Laughter. Because I want you to believe Abraham, that I am able to do the impossible. And that's what Paul says in in Romans chapter 4. In Romans chapter 4, we see this here. In hope against hope. In hope against hope, he believed so that he might become the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. When did she ever have a child? For 90 years she couldn't have a child. And now she's going to have a child. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. So here it was. So that God would be all in all, he gave him this promise. And when Sarah hears it in chapter 18, the Lord comes to Abram again, probably a couple months later, Sarah's in the other tent listening in, and God says to Abram, next year when I come back, Sarah will have a child. And she laughs too. She laughs. Think about it. I mean, don't be hard on Sarah here. I mean, if God, Elaine, you are going to have a child. Would you laugh? Would you laugh? I would laugh. So what do we see here? God is doing the impossible. And when she laughs... The Lord turns to Abram and he says, is anything too difficult for the Lord? No, not at all. And now we look at this third promise. The land, the descendants, impossible promises. The Messiah. I'm going to bring a Messiah through your your line and all the nations in the world, every family on earth will be blessed through him. That's the very first promise that God makes to Abram includes that, those, those words. The very last promise that God makes to Abram in chapter 22, he uses those words. In, in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The first and last time, he, he includes that. Now, why do, you say, why, why do you think I believe that that refers to Messiah? Well, it's very clear from the New Testament. Peter, when he's preaching in Acts 3, says... It's you who are the sons of the prophets and the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first God raised up his servant Jesus, 
and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. So it was this promise, this fulfillment of Messiah. And in Galatians chapter 3, Paul uses the very same things. The Scripture foreseeing that God would justify, make righteous the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. So here it is. God is promising Messiah. But look at the impossibility of that. The time to the fulfillment. It's 2,000 years from Abraham to Messiah. There's a whole bunch of things that can get in the way of that. The descendant's conduct. All of You look at Abram's, and I think God lays this out clearly for us to show that it's of God and not of men. This salvation of God is all of Him and not of us when you see the conduct of His descendants. His grandson, sorry, his great-grandson Judah commits incest with his daughter-in-law. And the Children from that relationship are in the, in the family line of Messiah. You see the brothers, Judah and his brothers, trying to kill Joseph. They're murderers in the line of the Messiah. It's, it, if it was conditioned on their behavior there would be no salvation. uh, Think about the hatred of their enemies. They've been trying to kill them. They've been trying to kill Messiah. Even Herod heard about Messiah and tried to wipe him out. None of that, though, kept God from bringing this impossible promise to pass. Or think about the relative unimportance of Israel. How big is Israel? God said, I chose you, Israel, not because you were the greatest nation, but because you were the smallest. Right? Remember all those those nations that had all this head start on Abram? And God gave Abram one descendant, Isaac, and gave Isaac one descendant that would be the, the, the nation of Israel, Jacob. And it wasn't until Jacob had... 12 sons that the nation began to expand, but God said, I chose you because you were the smallest of nations so that when Messiah comes, it would be on me, not on you. And so we see this. Outwardly, it looked like an impossible promise, but faith would conquer and God would be glorified as all in all. And look at how he made the Messiah look. Look at how he made his son look. Isaiah 53 said he had no stately form or majesty that we should behold him. He didn't look like a king. You know, all those little halos that are painted on the medieval paintings about Jesus, he didn't carry one around with him. You couldn't look at Jesus and say, that's Messiah. Nothing about him said that. And then the fact that he was cursed as a criminal, hanging on a cross, marred the fact that he would be the Savior? How could somebody who was condemned as a criminal on a cross be the Savior? 
And yet Paul speaks about that in Isaiah, I mean in Galatians 3. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, being a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. See, it was all about that, what we could not do. Abraham was called a a father of a multitude of nations because of this, that everyone is a child of Abraham who comes to faith in Jesus Christ. And now Abraham has this, this great family of those who've trusted in Christ because of what God has done. You know what? In Matthew 19... This rich young ruler comes to Jesus, and he he says to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, oh, no big deal. Just obey the commandments. That's a paraphrase. That really wasn't in there, and I'm I'm making it sound more flippant than it is. But Jesus said, just obey the commandments. And the man says, I've kept all these since I was young. What else do I lack? Do you see that he knew there was something missing? He knew there was something still not right. I think I've kept all the commandments, but it feels like something's not right. And Jesus said, oh, then just sell everything you have. Come follow, give to the poor. Come follow me and you'll have treasure in heaven. And at that moment, Jesus pinpointed what was really wrong. You've not kept any of the commandments because you've had God, money, as your God. You haven't even kept the first commandment. Have no other gods before me. And so as he goes away sad, Jesus said it's hard. It's difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know about you, but I have never seen a camel go through the eye of a needle. I've never seen them try because it's impossible. And all the people said, well, then, Lord, who can be saved? And his words, with man, this is impossible. He didn't say with men this is difficult. This is, with men, this is a tough thing to do. He said, with men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And that's what he's describing here, the the whole aspect of the coming Messiah, the whole aspect of salvation coming through our own effort, coming through something we might help God with, is ludicrous. Why? So that when you believe the promises of God, not just in salvation, but all the promises of God, when it happens, it has everything to do with God and His authority. So that when it does happen, God will be glorified. See, when God tells you the impossible promise, and instead of trying to be the boss and manipulate it so that you've got this situation under control, and you become helping God out because, well, I'm just doing what's difficult. Instead, you're trusting in God to do the impossible. So when it takes place, you can recognize and see Christ as Lord. 
submitting to his authority in his word. And if you're not willing to submit to God's authority and believe it when he speaks to you in his word, he's not your Lord. That's why I think, you know, I think we t- sometimes misunderstand what it means that God is Lord, that Jesus is Lord. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord and not do what I say? Faith in God's promises has everything to do with God being in charge and you resting in His Word. Think about this. When Jesus went to Peter and He is teaching and He tells Peter, He says, Peter, go, go out a little bit and cast your net into the water to, to take in some fish. And, and, and Peter says, listen, I'm the authority on fishing. You know what? I have my degree in fishing. And I'm going to give you at least five reasons right now why going out doesn't make sense. Listen, we've been fishing all night. We're tired. The fish didn't bite last night. That means they're not in the area. They're not going to be here now with the sunlight out. They're going to be scattering into the shade. But that's not what Peter said. He acknowledged that it didn't make sense. Lord, we've been fishing all night. We haven't caught anything. Master, nevertheless, at your word, we will let down the nets. Do you see what that was? That was an acknowledgement that whatever authority, whatever uh, degree, whatever experience I have, it doesn't come into play in God. When God says something, we're to submit to that authority. That's what it means when we have faith. He's our Lord. We're submitting to the authority of the Word of God. That's why it doesn't make sense in our own heart of hearts that salvation is a free gift by faith. Because everything inside us says what? I've got to do something. I've got to do something to earn my way to heaven. But God says the opposite. Call upon me and I will save you because I already paid the penalty for your sin. The penalty for sin is death. I paid it on the cross through the Son and therefore through His death, your sins are forgiven. Through His resurrection, you are made perfect in my sight by faith. Call upon me and you will be saved. So believing Jesus Christ is Lord means calling upon Him for salvation. But again, it's not just that promise. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. That's the first promise of promises. But there's all these others that we then have to work out in our life. Not for salvation. God has secured that when you call upon Him. But think about all these other areas that you might say are impossible today. And listen, what may be impossible for you is not impossible for you. Or you say, I I see where the Scripture says don't steal. But I just can't help it. I've just been, I grew up, my parents were thieves, I, I learned thievery. That's impossible for me to stop. Now for her, there's no problem with that. That that repulses me. But God's word to you is, don't steal any longer, but instead work with your own hands. Giving what is good. God, you need to to do this because it's impossible. Not impossible to her. It's impossible to you. 
So think about these. And these are just certain areas. Maybe there are areas in your life you're reading through the Word of God and you skip over that passage. Every time you come to that, you skip over that passage because you're not willing to say, God, you're all in all in this. God, you're able to do it when I can't. Think about this. Just, it's impossible to live sexually pure in this society. I mean, I am inundated with pictures and billboards and, and all kinds of things. It's impossible. The whole, the whole world now is shouting, sex, 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 sex. Are you awake now? <laughs> it's impossible. But what, is, what does the Scripture say? This is the will of God for you. First Thessalonians 4, this is the will of God for you. Your sanctification, your purity, that you know how to control your body in godliness, holiness, not in the lustful passions of the Gentiles. That's what God's Word says. And you're to say, God, how can I do that? But at your Word... And that's what walking by faith is. It's recognizing, it's submitting, submitting to the Word of God as your authority. Listen, it is impossible today to survive by tithing. It's impossible. In this era of rampant inflation, I mean, I can't survive on 110%. And you want me to survive on 90%? It's impossible. And yet God says... And, and in the New Testament, he doesn't even say the tithe. He, he goes beyond it to let a person be generous in generosity. It's not about a matter of mathematics. Because mathematics will tell you if you can't survive on 110, you can't survive on 90. It's a matter of faith and a matter of submission to God's Word. Not what you think. It's impossible to forgive that person. You don't know what they've done to me. It's a, this promise of God is not based on your psychological profile. It's not based on the authority of your counselor. It's right for you to hold that within against them. Just consider them dead in your mind, and you can get past this. The authority of the, the Word of God says, forgive, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Are there those passages that you skip over because you really don't want to submit to them? It has to do with faith so that God becomes your all and all. Do you ever think about what God called the church to do? Go therefore into all the nations, make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to, to obey all that I command you. That's impossible. But you know what? Who's building His church? Christ is building His church. Who would have thought that 30 years ago, when in that country that we spoke of earlier today, there were 0.2% Christians, and just a few years later now, there's 13%. Who's doing that? 
Christ is doing that. He said, I will build my church. Are we going to believe Him? And then go and do what He's calling us to do? And it all boils down to this one thing. The righteous shall live by faith. It's not by our strength. It's not by our commitment. It's by our faith in the Word of God to do what God calls us to do and to walk in that faith. That's what we need to see. That's what we need to recognize. When God has given us His Word, we see it. And so regardless, if you're here without Christ, He calls you to be saved by faith. If you've received Christ, He calls you now to walk by faith, for the Son of God lives in you because He gave Himself for you, rose from the dead on your behalf. Understand that. Recognize this. The righteous shall live by faith. When you go home, would you think about those passages of Scripture that you've bypassed? And maybe it is those passages about salvation. You've never been saved because you've always put an excuse before you and the Lord. Maybe it's about sexual purity or giving or forgiving or anything else. What is it God is working in your heart concerning? If you need to be saved today, would you come as we have an invitation time? Or if you're with Christ, you know Him, you've received Him, maybe you want to take this time to come forward and just say, God, by Your Word, I'm going to submit and I'm going to come to You. I'm going to follow You so that You will be all in all. Let's pray together. Father, I thank You for Your Word. Open our hearts to it. Allow Your Word to work in our hearts. Even those passages that are not so explicit, but those implicit ones that call us to walk with you in a way that we're not comfortable with. Lord, might we submit to your word in faith so that you would be glorified in all of this. And Lord, if there is someone here that does not know you as their Savior, Lord, might they not harden their hearts, might they not in pride say, I don't need to receive Christ. I'm fine just the way I am. Lord, don't let them put that off again because as your spirit is working in their hearts today, he may not be tomorrow. And so, God, we pray and ask that you'd help in that very thing as you're working in each heart today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand. We're going to sing, I'd rather have Jesus. As we stand and sing, would you come if you need Christ? Would you come just step down the aisle as we begin to sing? You can be saved. Somebody will share with you how to receive Christ. As we sing, you come. than silver or gold I'd rather be his than have riches untold I'd rather
rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand than to be the king of a vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. We'll sing one more verse. If you need Christ, would you come? If you need to take this time to pray, to seek His face, maybe you know Him, take this time to seek Him where you are as we sing. I'd rather have Jesus than man's applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. I'd rather be true to his holy name than to be the king of a vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. All right, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. Open our hearts to receive it, to understand it, to apply it to our own lives. Lord, if there are some that are without you, they've never received you as Savior, that today, Lord, they would trust in you. They would seek your face. Father, I pray, help us tonight as we come back to hear from the Gospel of John that you would work in our own hearts. Remind us of what you have prayed for us, what your Son is praying for us today. And Lord, may we walk in that truth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed.